Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. Last week, we were looking at uh, Jesus calling the first disciples and specifically his interaction with Nathaniel. Remember, uh, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we talked about the significance of that brief conversation and uh, how life-changing it was. But you may remember that we opened that message with John the Baptist being grilled by messengers who'd been sent by the Sadducees and the Pharisees to find out who he was. They wanted to know if John was the Christ. And if he wasn't the Christ, was he Elijah? And if he wasn't Elijah, was he the prophet? They didn't understand that the prophet, as promised by Moses in Deuteronomy, was the Christ. And he, John, maybe didn't quite grasp that he was indeed Elijah. He was the Elijah figure that was prophesied uh, by Malachi. But I want you to remember that John, John the Baptist, had a very powerful, very public and influential ministry that began before Jesus' ministry and then uh, took place during the early days of Jesus' ministry until he was uh, put in prison and eventually killed. Uh, Probably wasn't a very long ministry, a matter of months probably, a few months maybe. But he was... uh, he exploded on the scene after his time in the wilderness there, the uh, wilderness of Judea, and uh, called people to repentance. He had disciples. And as when he called people to repentance, people responded. We're told in uh, Luke chapter 3 that multitudes, Jew and Gentile, multitudes came out to be baptized by him. In fact, let's look at Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Matthew chapter 3 makes it clear that he was, uh, that he was directing that remark about you, you brood of vipers. He was directing that remark to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had come out. Uh, many of them had come out to be baptized. He wasn't rebuking the whole crowd. This was his whole ministry, uh, make straight the way of the Lord, and, and, and encouraging them. This is you know, his ministry in a nutshell. He was a forerunner of the Christ. He knew the Messiah was coming, and his message, based on the writings, was that when he comes, you take an, an, as a whole what the Bible says about the Son of God. You know, and he's going to discipline those who are in rebellion and rule them with a rod of iron. And uh, he's telling him when he comes back, you know, you need to be ready. You need to have your life in order. Come and be baptized. Repent of your sins. Get your life straight before he shows up. And, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. And so the multitudes came out, again, significantly Jews and Gentiles, including Pharisees and Sadducees. But he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And uh, when we uh, read the account of the messengers in Luke 7, you know, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees a little bit later on, send the messengers to find out who he is. Are you the Christ? 
it's, it doesn't come out and say this. I kind of get the impression as I'm reading it that they would have been, maybe at least they're moving toward being more willing to receive John as the Messiah than they were eventually to receive Jesus as Messiah. And that's easy for me to believe because of the way John is described. You know, he was a very Elijah-type character, wasn't he? Right down to the way he dressed. You know, clothes of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist and eating uh, locusts and wild honey. And, uh, and when he came, he was very bold and he addressed the crowd. He spoke to Roman soldiers exactly the way he spoke to the Pharisees and the Gentiles and the Jews. He spoke very authoritatively. He was no respecter of persons. Uh, it's a really interesting account, you know, because one, you know, this, these people, what shall we do? Well, hey, if you've got an abundance of clothes, share them. If you've got an abundance of food, share. And then the soldiers came to him. What should we do? Don't intimidate people. Don't use your position and your, your, uh, your uniform to threaten those people around you. Uh, and, and the tax collectors, what should we do? Don't take any, don't collect any more than you're supposed to for the government. Don't skim off the top. So uh, he was just very bold. And I think you know, when you keep in mind, we've talked about this hundred times, what kind of Messiah were the Jews looking for, uh, including and maybe even particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and lead them in a successful rebellion against Rome. He was going to come and fight their battles, throw Rome off their shoulders and establish uh, the earthly kingdom, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, you know, the new Israel. He was going to come as the manifest king and restore the kingdom at that time. And again, again, they knew the time was close. So anyway, but then Jesus' ministry begins to take off and uh, his fame spreads and specifically uh, his fame as a worker of miracles spread. People were talking about uh, particularly healings and demons being cast out. And then we read in Mark chapter 6, in Mark 6 beginning in 14, it says, Now Herod, King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when, uh, I'm going to read on here for a second. Uh, but when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And then it goes on to explain how John got beheaded. And you know the story. See, John was a central figure in the early days of Jesus' ministry and the early accounts of the New Testament. Herod was offended by him. Why was Herod offended? Because John had called him out. You know, you've married your brother's wife, and this is wrong. This should not have happened. And so he was offended by John, but he was also afraid of John. He was only willing to go so far, and he would not put him to death because, one, he was a little bit afraid of John. Number two, he was very afraid of the people. John was immensely popular. And if he knew that if he put John to death, the people would, uh, he might be risking a full-scale revolt. So he wouldn't do it. But he was so impressed by the dancing of, uh, you know, his illicit wife's daughter that he promised her anything. And he promised her publicly, oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And her mother said, if he asks you that, tell him what you want, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. 
So she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And he was grieved. He did not want to do it, but too many people heard him promise. So he did, had him executed at that time. But before that, why was he so easy to lay hands on and chop his head off? Because while he was afraid to kill him, he wasn't afraid to put him in prison. That's where John was. Herod had John put in prison. And from prison, John sent messengers to Jesus, asking Jesus to confirm are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, John, this is after John boldly identified Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he's in prison, and it's not like, I don't think he's having any genuine doubts. He just, he knows probably at this point his days are numbered, and he just wants to hear the well done Mission accomplished from Jesus. Are you the one? And John and Jesus sends him back a great message. You tell John what you've seen. And he describes the miracles and the deliverance that he's doing in his ministry. Now, uh, and again, maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe like me, you're thinking, maybe John is also looking for, it's like, all right, Jesus, I'm convinced you're him. Why haven't you established the kingdom yet? Like his disciples, we're, we're going to continually ask him. Now, look at this in Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24. Ah, am I there? Nope, I'm in chapter 8. Here we go, Luke 7, 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's a, that's a pretty glowing recommendation. Think about what he's saying. See, John the Baptist is, is greater than Moses. John the Baptist greater than Daniel. John the Baptist greater than Elijah. Well, a couple things. Number one, he's not necessarily saying John is greater than them. He's simply saying they're not greater than him. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. But there's also the present tense. Among those born of woman, none is greater than John the Baptist, as far as prophets go. Were there other prophets on the scene at the time? Yeah, there were. We know that. We'll, we'll look at one uh, here, I think, on Sunday. Uh, there were other prophets, but John was the preeminent prophet. And Jesus says he's more than a prophet. He's the He's a prophesied prophet. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is a prophecy fulfilled. He, his birth was a miraculous birth. It wasn't a virgin birth. It wasn't as miraculous as Jesus. But it was. It was a supernatural birth. He's a guy who got the attention of everyone. Jews and Gentiles in Judea. And he knew, and we know, uh, we know that Jesus was greater Right? I mean, John was very upfront about that. I indeed baptize with water. Here he's looking at the multitudes of people who are coming to him. He's got disciples. He's got people checking up on him. And he says very publicly, very boldly, 
I am baptizing you with water, but there's one coming who is greater than I. I'm, how much greater? I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. But look at the rest of verse. This is what I really want you to see. We'll finish verse, let's read verse 28 again. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Do you know how loaded that statement is? Do you hear what our Lord is saying? He's not talking about, you could read that, and I won't see me. Well, it means angels are greater than John the Baptist. He's not talking about the nature of angels versus the nature of man on earth. He is differentiating those who are of the kingdoms of the earth and those who are of the kingdom of heaven. You see, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last prophet of the law. Jesus ushered in the new covenant. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, the age of grace. And he's saying that the least in this new kingdom is greater than the greatest prophet of the law. Who's he talking about? Well, in broad terms, he's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about us. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you are in the kingdom of God, you are a greater than John the Baptist. According to Jesus. Do you feel like it? So here's the question. How do I know I'm in the kingdom? Well, you remember Sunday. And you remember this from, I'm sure, other than uh, Sunday in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we can stop there. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, if you're born again, you're in the kingdom of God. And the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. This is such a radical concept. I mean, we're so used to it. Maybe sometimes just how radical it is fails to make this kind of an impact on us. But it took forever for the Jews to get their heads around it. The, you know, in the Old Testament, there was this knowledge. It wasn't universal, by the way, but there was a knowledge of God's omnipresence. You know, when we read in the Psalms, and David is describing things like God's omniscience and his omnipresence and everything else, uh, his omnipotence, we forget that David had a much more intimate relationship with God than the average Jew. He had a greater understanding than the average Jew. Uh, you know, Jonah tried to run from God by getting on a ship. Did Jonah not understand the omnipresence of God? I don't know. But certainly not everybody did. Uh, Now, it could be more specific. Like in the Exodus, you know, God was clearly with them. He made his presence manifest. He made his presence visible with the fire and the cloud. For Joshua, it was simply a promise. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, But really, the concept of God with Israel is really more properly understood as God for Israel. He is our God. He is for us. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, you don't want God against you. And if you you can only have one person for you, it might as well be God, right? Uh, David, like I said, he certainly had a better handle on the more intimate aspects of God's presence, but by and large, Israel did not. They knew God was God, and he knew he was, he was, that God was with them in the sense that he was for them. I'm with you. I'm for you. At certain times, 
talking in the Old Testament, we read these exciting accounts of how the Spirit of God would come upon people. Right? People like Samson. Uh, people like Saul. You know, Samson would do these great feats of strength and, and uh, war, and Saul would prophesy. Uh, but it wasn't something that the Old Testament Jews saw as a constant, attainable thing. It was something God did from time to time, as he willed. So we have the God is for us. We have the Spirit of God upon us. And then with the advent of Messiah, with Jesus Christ, we get this wonderful name, and we just sang about it, Emmanuel. God with us us and God with us in a way he had not been before in a very real tangible way God became a man the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us that's God with us we go from God for us spirit of God upon us to God with us and that's it when we were looking at this at Christmas time This, the ministry of Jesus, was an extraordinary thing. Really, God in the flesh. Now, we we remember, I think most people in here know this, but it's it's never a waste of time to, to nail this down. Jesus operated as a man. He didn't operate as God. He operated as a man full of the Holy Spirit in perfect faith. The reason he was able to do everything so well is because he was unhindered by the sin nature. He was all man except for the sin. He was all God except for the glory. He did not do the things he did because he was God. He did them as a perfect sinless man, following the will of God, full of the Holy Spirit without measure. We know this, right? And yet this is, in terms of who he was as a man, God in the flesh. That means everything he said was perfect. Everything he did was perfectly in line with God's will. And he revealed the Father to us. Now, why do I make such a big deal about this right now? Because I'm making another point here in a minute. Don't get frustrated if you can't answer every question people have. Don't get frustrated if you can't convince everybody that you're praying for and talking to. I had made a, asked a foolish question years ago, years ago when I was young and foolish, you know. Sometimes I get a little, and I even knew it was a silly question then. I just didn't have the answer. Why won't God do one really obvious thing to demonstrate to people that he's real? And my friend pointed out, there was never anything more obvious than the ministry of Jesus Christ. Anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear should know from the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. The people who were right there, the eyewitnesses, shouldn't have had any doubt. But they wouldn't believe. And people won't believe us either. Not, Not everybody. So we go from God for us and God upon us to God with us. Man, can it get any better than that? As a matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read a little bit longer passage here. Colossians chapter 1, beginning, we'll begin in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. For I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To the saints of God, God reveals the mystery of his saving power by demonstrating that Christ indwells us. The power of Christ in us is supposed to be an encouragement to one another. We should see it in each other's lives. See him in each other's lives. And let me, uh, you know, we go from God for us, to God upon us, to God with us, to God in us. But let me point out, and, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is called also the Spirit of Christ. We need, if we are going to be, I just, there's such a high energy passage that I just read in Colossians. This mystery has been hidden from ages, from generations, and now it's being revealed to the saints. Ultimately, by the way, it's revealed to the, to the world. This is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If people, if we are going to see him in each other, and and if the world is going to see him in us, we need to be not just people who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be spirit-filled Christians. Spirit-filled Christians. The people, the, the, the early disciples were saved when Jesus breathed on them the breath of life. And they were the ones who walked so closely with him, knew him better. I'm talking about the 120 and certainly the 12. These who, they'd already, they'd already been sent out by Jesus. They'd done the work. They'd walked with him and done the work with him. And then when he, just before he ascended, he says what? All right, I'm leaving. Go get him, tiger. No, I'm leaving. Wait here. Don't go out. Everything I told you to do, you're going to do it. Just don't do it yet. Don't do it until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Because when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you'll receive the power to do everything I've told you to do. We need the same Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of Christ. That is Christ in us. There is a... uh, I don't want to get too deeply into this because I don't want to confuse anybody and I certainly don't want to offend everybody. People have asked through the years things like, uh, well, 
Look at all the people Billy Graham led to the Lord. And literally millions, right? Imagine what he could have done if he'd been filled with the Spirit. May I humbly suggest that Billy Graham was filled with the Spirit. Far as we know, Billy Graham did not ever publicly declare that he spoke in tongues. Now, he did write some things and share some things kind of almost mysteriously. He said, there are some things that I know about and things that I practice that God has not called me to teach. He's called me to be an evangelist. He didn't specify, as far as I know, to anybody, hey, guess what? I secretly am a, am a tongue talker. I do believe he was filled with the Spirit. Okay? Now, biblically, we see example after example when they received the Holy Spirit that it was, it was obvious that they had received the Spirit because they began to speak in other tongues. I mean, the disciples said, how do you know they got the Spirit? Because they spoke in tongues just like we did when we got the Spirit. It was this demonstration. It was the evidence. I just always stop short of saying, if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Spirit. I don't believe that. I do believe that if you are filled with the Spirit, you can speak in tongues. Pray in tongues. Now, I'm not talking about standing up and offer a public utterance. That's up to God who does that and when they do that. But if you're saved and you desire to be filled with the Spirit, I believe God desires that you pray in tongues. Why am I, why am I saying all this now? Because I'm going to, you stand up with me, by the way. I'm going to give a twofold invitation. If you're not saved, get saved. Man, we're talking about God for us, God on us, God with us, and now God in us. I want you to be saved. God wants you to be saved. You want to be born again in the kingdom of God, greater than John the Baptist. But looking around here, I think everybody in here has made that decision. And probably most of you have made the decision to be filled with the Spirit. But I'm going to invite you, if you haven't, I want to pray with you. I want to lay my hands on you and pray this really, uh, I went to school for two years to learn how to pray this complicated formula prayer. And it goes just like this, receive ye the Holy Ghost. I just, want to, I just want to join my faith with yours. You receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, receive the power to do everything he's called you to do. And I want you to, and from that moment, begin to expect to pray in tongues. It is a powerful and useful uh, weapon that he's given us. I think, well, it's just one little thing. Why do you make such a big deal of it? Because God does. You know, there's a, he hardly says anything about it. Yes, he does. There's three whole chapters about the gifts of the Spirit, and tongues is at the center of this conversation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. You go read it. It's all one conversation about the gifts and specifically about tongues and its value. And I don't want you to be, I don't want you to fall behind in any good gift. Now, when we're together, and you want to manifest that gift, it doesn't mean you're going to bless us by praying in tongues at the, top of, uh, at the top of your lungs from your seat. You know, Paul said, I'd rather you prophesy if you're going to, if you're going to come up here uh, and do something in public. But if you want to deliver a tongue, deliver it decently and in order, and make sure somebody interprets it. But you can pray in tongues. That's something separate. Paul said, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. When I pray in the Spirit, my spirit prays, but my mind's unfruitful. So what do I do? I will pray in the Spirit and with the understanding. Because praying in the Spirit's good for my spirit. I want you to be able to do that. I want, but bottom line is, I want you full of the Holy Ghost. Christ is in you. Christ is in me. That's hope for the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's hope. And, and this is something, again, 
we are not going to be the inspiration and the encouragement to each other in this room if we're not full of the Holy Ghost. Christ is in us. But for the world to see it, for each other to see it, we've got to be not just believers, spirit-filled believers. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.